0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, September 6th, we are studying Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1-24. to 24. In today's text, Moses, Aaron, and the people of Israel participate in the inaugural divine service at the tabernacle. So that the glory of the Lord appears to them with his blessing. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appled. Pastor Appled serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Good to be back on with you, Tim.
1: Looking forward to uh, Levit- Leviticus today.
0: So talk to us about the book of Leviticus. You're looking forward to it. Sometimes Christians don't look forward to the book of Leviticus. Why should we look forward to this? Well, because
1: it's so different. Um, I think that's one of the joys of of the Bible, is that there's all kinds of different genres in there, and I know that uh, that can be difficult, like who enjoys reading um, the census, all of the censuses um, that are recorded in Scripture, but... And something similar happens in Leviticus too, right? You have all these rituals described, um, not in like the meaning of them. It's kind of one of the interesting features of Leviticus that it just tells you, here's what you do. This is what you're supposed to do. Do this, do that, Um, you know, offer this, offer that. Uh, But what you see there is um, the life of the tabernacle. So all the things that are happening inside of the tabernacle, um, are recorded here in Leviticus, and um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like reading about all the blood and uh, and all the sacrifices. It certainly, when you read it with Christ in mind and His sacrifice in mind, um, I think that it that just really opens up the book to see that this is not just weird Old Testament stuff, um, but that it it really does show us our Savior uh, and and kind of magnify his cross. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think as, as we've gone through now to chapter 9, a lot of those features have come through. I've noticed it a lot more just reading the book out loud for the sake of the show. Uh, the repetitious nature of the way the sacrifices are described and how they're to be carried out, just reading it out loud has helped me to gain a greater appreciation mm-hmm. for it. And to hear the ways that this is God giving this to his people, So that he can receive, or so that they can receive him in a gracious way rather than a a condemnatory way. And really a lot of that's going to come to fruition in the chapter that we've got today, how those very sacrifices that the Lord has given for his people to do are given so that the result is he comes to them with his gracious presence, to be with them as their God in a saving way, rather than a way that will, you know, consume them in, in burning fire.
1: Yeah, I think the, the te- you have to keep in mind the, the purpose of the tabernacle um, In when you're reading the whole book of Leviticus. It can sometimes feel like, um, yeah, I think we get it backwards. We read it as if God commands them to build this tabernacle to keep them far away from him, because there's certain, and there certainly are barriers, right? Um, you know, we read this from the perspective of the New Testament, and we say, well, look at all these barriers that are there. Um, but if you if you understand it the right way, it is like this. God commands the tabernacle, he he puts all these sacrifices in place in order to give access to himself, and that access is it's a preliminary kind of access, right? It's not the final version that's going to come in Christ, and, and we could say even in the resurrection, um, but already in the tabernacle, God is giving his gracious access, like you just said, and yes, there are you know, lots of gratings, there's lots of veils, there's different things that have to be offered, there's distinctions between clean and unclean and who can come in and who can go where. So it's not full access, but it is a, um, there is progress here, right, from the time before the tabernacle to the time after. And what that allows you to see is that uh, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of this stuff is um, a gift, not just, here's a bunch of stuff for you to do. You know, here's a bunch of rules to follow.
0: Yeah, that's right. So you've mentioned the tabernacle, the priesthood, both. That really helps us with the context already. We're in a section of Leviticus where there is a little bit of narrative, really. this is These are things yeah. that are happening, not just prescriptions for what to do or not to do. Things are actually happening here. So help us with that context. How does the tabernacle, the priesthood, fit into what we're reading in chapter 9?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. in, in within Leviticus, uh, chapters 8 through 10 are... Is it the only place where you have, like, a narrative? I think so. Um there might be a little bit, again, with, um, you know, they're sacrificing goats where they're not supposed to be later. But, but yeah, this is definitely the story part of Leviticus. And the story is this. Um, the people have come out of Egypt, so go all the way back to Exodus. They've come out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. And I think if I remember my chronology right, they're at Mount Sinai for longer than you think they are. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, they're there for a whole year. Um, and what they're doing there is building the tabernacle you know constructing everything and so Leviticus 8 through 10 is basically saying once the tabernacle is complete what do you do with it? do you just look at it uh, you know does everybody come and admire look at those look at the beautiful um, veils and look at all this great stuff well you you need the priests um, and so chapter 8 is the, um, it's the consecration or the ordination of Aaron, and that begins in chapter 8, and then chapter 9 is kind of the completion of Aaron's ordination, and it's the first, um, the inaugural, to use a nice word, right, Tim? The inaugural, the beginning of the, the daily offerings in the temple, or, you know, what we would call the divine service.
0: So with this being the inaugural divine service, the, the first set of daily rites that are, are given, knowing that this continues then for the history of Israel, seeing the first one, does that help set the tone and see the meaning for what's happening then every day after this?
1: Yeah, I think so. So it's, it's kind of like, um, think of baptism this way, right? Um, Jesus' baptism is the inaugural baptism. And every one of our baptisms is, you know, uh, our participation in it. Now, when I, I've never baptized a baby here at this church, or an adult for that matter, and the heavens are ripped open and the Holy Spirit comes down and, you know, we hear the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved Son. So those things were all manifest at the baptism of Jesus, but they're also hidden now. This is part of the mystery, the sacrament of holy baptism, is that uh, those things are still happening— they're just not seen by us. And in the same way, when we read about, um, you know, what happened on the day of this first divine service, you know, the, the glory of the Lord appears, the Lord appears, fire comes out, that's what is happening at all of the services. The, the people are brought into the glory of the Lord, and he gives them his blessing. He puts his blessing on them.
0: All right, so with that in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is Leviticus chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar, and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. And he dipped his finger in the blood, and put it on the horns of the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it as a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar but the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he came down from the offering and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That's our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Apple, just give us, in summary, what's happening here, maybe a a step-by-step. What's Just give us the broad overview of the steps that are taken here.
1: Well, the very first thing is that uh, it's it happens on the eighth day, which that ties chapter nine very closely, tightly with, um, you know, this is going to be shocking. Chapter eight. This is why you have me on, right, Tim, to bring out these great insights. Right. Um, But what what had happened was the priests were ordained for seven days. It was it was not like a pastor's ordination where you know maybe it's an hour, maybe it's an hour and a half. You were ordained for seven days. It, it it took uh I, they all, I only needed an hour Tim okay. you needed you needed, needed a longer. whole week but um it took Aaron and his sons uh, seven days to be consecrated to be ordained kind of separated um, and you know dedicated to this holy service and so then on the eighth day um, comes up here and I think what we should connect this to this is good kind of biblical symbolism. Um, seven should always draw our minds back to creation. Um, it, it, I think it's worth pointing out here, Tim, when we talk about the, the symbolism of numbers, um, the the numbers get their symbolism from God's actions. They don't have their symbolism that God then fits into. He He gives the symbol its meaning. So the number seven is symbolic because God created the world in seven days. And so when we see seven, or when we see 40, or when we see eight, we don't go looking for, you know, what does that number make me think of? We go look, we start with what has God done with the number, and then we see, okay, does that fit? And it, it fits really well here, because you have the creation, if you will, of the priests with their seven-day-long ordination, so you have their week, um, their creation week of, of establishing them as um, the priests, and then the eighth day is the day of, you know, it's the new beginning. It's the new creation. And here's what happens in the new creation. And, you know, you can think of it as, it sounds like there's kind of three parts to the service. There's the offerings for Aaron, for himself. There's the offerings uh, for the people. And then there's the final blessing of the people. So those—that's how I would kind of outline it. You can just have that structure in your head: um, offerings for Aaron, offerings for the people, and then the final blessing of the people.
0: Yeah, that's. I think those three parts come through pretty pretty clearly. As you were talking about the eighth day, and what you said about the Lord is the one who sets the the symbolism for the numbers. He doesn't, because of what he does, that shows us how to understand the numbers. So just as I mean, we see here the eighth day. Is associated with the thought of creation and the new creation as another way to to tie that same thing in, in the way that God acts in history. Later on in the construction of the temple, there are images of angels, like from the Garden of Eden. There are images of palm trees. So you have other elements of creation, new creation, associated with the tabernacle, with the temple, that just, again, reinforce this idea that, again, it's God is the one who's doing this and showing us what these numbers Mean rather than the numbers being something and God fits Himself into that somehow.
1: Yeah, and just think about what that, um, how that connects up. Uh, what is happening in the tabernacle, right? If the tabernacle is constructed, the architecture of the place. Um, I think even there's, isn't it right that there's seven speeches in Exodus that the creation of the tabernacle is like this sevenfold? You know, the Lord said. And and Moses did the Lord said and Moses did the Lord said and Moses did. It sounds like you know. Then God said, "Let there be," and there was. Let there be, and there was. So you start to um, make these connections with. Okay, well, we we fell in the garden, and the whole world fell into sin. But now here's this new creation, um, and it's through what happens in the tabernacle that we have some kind of you know participation in the new creation. And that's especially going to then um, come out in the resurrection accounts of Jesus, right? Is that on the eighth day, uh, he rises from the dead, right? Um, I think it's in, it's in Luke's gospel that that comes out. Um, I know for sure it happens in John's gospel too. Um, on the eighth day, he comes and appears to Thomas and the other disciples. So every Sunday uh, is this it's the first day of the week, and it's also the eighth day, in the sense that it is, um, it's the reminder, or the, the memorial of the resurrection, which is our entrance into the new creation through through faith in Christ.
0: Well, and the, the thought of the new creation also connects to what we were talking about earlier, that the tabernacle is the way by which God desires to dwell among his people with his, with his holiness in a way that won't consume them and kill them. And so the the creation and again new creation wh- what happens there? Well, this is where God dwells with his people. So to see these things happen on the 8th day again reinforces that same idea too that that the Lord is not again imposing barriers so much as is he giving ways that they can come to him, maybe you know through these through these gifts. The point is to draw them to himself so that he can dwell with them rather than to keep them away. Kind of like we were saying earlier yeah, and look, and look at how it comes out in Leviticus, right?
1: Is um, when, when this service is complete, um, the culmination of it is that the people see the glory of the Lord, they receive his blessing, and it says they, they shout and fall on their faces, right? That's the translation. And, uh, you know, it's, not, it's a little bit ambiguous when you hear it. When I was listening to you read it there, are they terrified and they're falling down because they, you know, they they can't stand it being there. Um, I think that's the wrong way to read it. I think it's a shout of joy. It's the it's the voice of praise coming up from the people, and the the bowing down too is this um, this prostration, this act of worship and adoration. We are seeing the glory of the Lord. We are in His presence. His blessing is on us. And we, you know, it's like it says in Philippians, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth um, in the in the end. Uh, well, that's what you see happening at the end of the, the divine service, already back here in Leviticus. Hmm.
0: So uh, to take that last verse then, rather than the perhaps the terror that was there when the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai, and again, keeping in mind that they are still right there at Mount Sinai, they haven't yep. left yet... So the, the fear and terror that they felt when he first appeared to them in his glory and the lightning and the the thunder and the trumpet blasts and all of those things that are there in Exodus 19, you're suggesting now that he's appearing in the glory at the tabernacle, this should be seen as a, a worship, this is his gracious appearance, he's not coming to terrify them, but to bless them.
1: Correct, yes. Um, and... You know, why, why do I—well, it, it doesn't say one way or another there. It doesn't say that they fell down um, because they were just overcome with love and joy and, and happiness. Um, you, have to, you have to understand that uh, because it's omitted, you know, and compare that with the description of when they received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. There you have it very explicitly said, and the people were afraid, and God said, good— it's right for them to be afraid. You know, I always, I always like that. Um, you know, Moses comes, that, comes back and says, fear not, God wants you to be afraid. So, well, <laughs> so am I supposed to be afraid or not? So that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And uh, this is good old stuff, right? That the fear um, is not only terror, right? There is uh, right, a recognition of he is the creator, I am his creature. We are not on the same level right? Uh, but it's also the fear that is reverence. It's the fear that it, we could translate it as awe. The awe of the Lord falls on the people. Think of all the people who marvel when Jesus is doing his miracles. It's it's kind of like that. When you're in the presence of the Lord, um, his glory, his majesty is overwhelming, um, and it can be terrifying, but because there, of the sacrifices that God gave to the people, um, their sins are atoned for, and they're able to come into his presence and not be, you know, simply terrified, um, but to have that awe of, God is good to us, his blessing is on us, this is a good thing.
0: Well, and even thinking about the way that this plays out in the Exodus narrative, when they are afraid of the Lord's voice, they, they want Moses to speak the Lord's word to them, rather than hearing it directly from the Lord himself. And as you said, that desire for the mediator between the Lord and his people, that's a good thing. The Lord commends that. And so again, Moses has served in that role, relaying the word of the Lord. We're seeing in this chapter Aaron serving in a, a role of mediator in a sense, but just having the tabernacle there yep. as a the way that the Lord now mediates his presence among his people, this is what the, the Lord is desiring to do, is to come to them in this way, in this mediating way. So again, he he's doesn't come to consume them and to terrify them, but instead to their, to their joy, which is tied into the fear of the Lord, but now a fear of the Lord that is, is full of that awe, respect, joy, love. Yeah, the, and that mediation
1: is a great word when you're thinking about what is the role of a priest. Um, on the one hand, the priest's job is uh, just to obey you know, the, do, the, do this. That's what Leviticus is saying over and over again. Here's how you do the sacrifices. Um, so I wonder, you know, maybe it was kind of easy to be a priest, right, Tim? Um, it, there's no question about what you do. You, you do exactly what it, what it says to do. So priests obey, um, but they also are these mediators, and the whole tabernacle itself is a mediator. It brings um, that access Um, the holy God and the unholy people have to be brought together somehow. Well, how's that going to happen? That's what atonement is all about. It's through the blood of the sacrifices um, that the people's sins can be covered. To atone can just be translated as to cover, Um, so they're covered and they're brought safely um, to enjoy the Lord and receive his
0: blessings. Yeah, what you said about it being easy to be a priest in the sense that the Lord says, do this and then that's what you do. I, I do think is is something that you see throughout the book of Leviticus. And again, maybe I'm not sure why this is, but we might see it as burdensome, but rather, I, I think it's quite freeing because you know that if you have if you do what the Lord has said, he's going to do what he has said, and not in a, a sort of like you manipulate him, but because he's attached his promise to these things. And even within this very text, I think that it's verse 6 that really lays this out, where before everything starts happening in terms of the sacrifices, Moses tells the people, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. I and mean, that's, that's the purpose. The Lord's not trying to burden his people. He's giving them this so that then he is going to give this according to his command and his promise. These things are, are not burdensome, but they are rather a gift so that the Lord would appear in his glory to his people. I, I can't help
1: but think of the the difference between um, preaching a sermon and just conducting the service, right? Um, which of those is is harder, Tim, for a pastor to do? Preaching, <laughs> yeah, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. The service you. I mean, you say the say the yeah black and do the red, yeah.
1: exactly. It's all laid out. You just you you know where to go. Um, if you've done it in one place, you can pretty well you know. Of course, there's little changes and there's customs in in all different places, but it's pretty much that's the life of a priest. Um, you're just you just do what you're told to do. Um, the prophet is the one who has to. You know, speak. And the priests had a role in teaching, but even the way that they teach is a lot of times just by doing, Mm. um, making the distinction, oh, you know, that's leprosy on your skin, so you can't come in. Go home, come back in seven days, we'll look at it again. Um, So that's how they teach. I'm sure there was some more oral teaching, you know, some kind of, something like catechesis, Uh, but one of the primary ways that the priests teach is by what they do. Right. So...
0: Right, and it's and now just since you brought up the prophet, it's not like the prophet gets to say whatever he wants, though. the The role of the prophet is to speak back to sure. the people what what God has spoken. So, in a, in a sense, I suppose the prophet's job is is just as easy. You know, he's just saying what he's been told.
1: Yeah, that could be. I mean, God does pretty much tell him, "Go and say this, right. go and go and do this." Now, uh, the other thing that is that's really great in this uh, chapter. It's all great, but um, this glory of the Lord yeah. business, right? Um, that the glory of the Lord appears to the people. Um, there's been a few other times in up to this point in Scripture where the glory of the Lord has appeared. And for our listeners, probably the most memorable you know, reference to the glory of the Lord is when they come out of Egypt, it's the glory of the Lord that's in the cloud by day and in the fire by night right? Um, and that happens again, I think, when they receive the manna, they they see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. So glory and cloud always go together, um, but not here. Mm. Here, it's just the glory. And now, you know, what, what do we make of that? Well, I think it at least invites you to, to kind of think, well, okay, they're seeing the cloud is removed, so all that conversation we just had about um, the mediation, right? The cloud, they're passing through the cloud, and now they're coming, you know, in this very close, you know, almost sac, what we would say almost this sacramental um, connection to the Lord, and they no longer see his glory hidden behind the cloud. Now they see whatever it is, um, the glory of the Lord, it's not described here, but they see it without the cloud, in between.
0: Mm. All right, let's let's pick that thought up on the glory of the Lord that's seen without the cloud here and how that's going to take us into other areas of biblical theology. Let's pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening sure. to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Apple this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, September 6th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor David Appled. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, prior to the break, we were talking about the glory of the Lord, which appears here before the people in verse 23, apart from the cloud, as you were saying. Now, you mentioned some cases prior to this where the glory of the Lord appears to his people. Trace this start tracing this through the scriptures, the glory of the Lord. Talk more about that.
1: Yeah, it's a similar phenomenon to um, the, the angel of the Lord, or even the word of the Lord. Mm. You know, when we hear that in the prophets, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, or the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, we think of an auditory, exp- you know, they heard something, and then they spoke. But there's other places, um, like even in Genesis, the word of the Lord came to Abram, and took him outside. So you almost have this, now maybe, it again, it doesn't describe what did he see, so it could have just been an auditory um, coming of the Lord, but it, it almost, it makes it sound like there was some kind of visual, something visual as well. And all of these things, the glory, the angel, um, the word of the Lord, these are all um, what we often will, will talk about as the um, instances where God himself is appearing to his people. Um, So the fancy word for this is a theophany, a manifestation. You can think of epiphany, a manifestation of God himself. He comes and he can be seen in some kind of form. Now, this is all pre-incarnation, right? So another way that you might hear people talk about this is these are all references to the pre-incarnate Christ, you know? which person of the Trinity is appearing here. Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it the Holy Spirit? Um, oftentimes, you know, when we talk about angel and word, um, we, we can draw connections to the second person of the Trinity. Um, I don't know if we can be as specific with the glory of the Lord. Um, I think I've often heard it as the that, you know, connect this with the Holy Spirit— however you want to work that out, the point is God is coming to his people. He's appearing to his people, mm. and the glory comes back in uh, Ezekiel. You, you come across this quite a bit, and you have in Ezekiel much more of what did that glory look like, um, and that's where there's this there's a swirling cloud, and inside the cloud there's these four cherubim, and they have four faces, and they're darting around like lightning, um, but then even... Within that, you know, over the top of these four cherubim, he sees, as it were, it says, the appearance of a man who looks like gleaming metal, you know, like this ambrosia, um, fiery, burnished bronze metal, and that's what the glory of the Lord is when Ezekiel sees it. Mm. So, now it doesn't tell us what they saw in Leviticus; it doesn't describe it, but I don't see any reason why we should assume that it was a totally different appearance. I would just say, what Ezekiel saw is what um, they saw in Leviticus, and, you know, just for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit didn't want it to be uh, recorded there in Leviticus.
0: So here in Leviticus, where again, the glory of the Lord appears to the people regardless of of how they actually saw it, we, we said toward the beginning of our conversation, that this being the inaugural divine service really sets the tone, helps the people to understand what's going on every time that divine service is is going on after this. So, getting this again, maybe look behind the veil. In this case, what does that reveal about the ongoing nature of the divine service for the people of Israel? This is how they're in. Um, they have this special
1: communion with God. Right. And I use that word intentionally because I think I I can't help but think of uh, in the New Testament um, the Holy Communion that we have in the body and blood of Christ uh, in the Lord's Supper. But the daily service was that kind of on a corporate level. Um, You know, it it says in our text that um, Aaron is there and it says the people are there. Now, I, I doubt that means every last Israelite was there at the tabernacle. There's probably representatives you know, the representative heads, the Old Testament is full of this, you know, this person represents his tribe or his clan or, um, you know, or the whole people. Um, and so you probably have Aaron and the, the representatives of Israel, and they are, um, as a corporate body here, they're brought into the glory cloud, and they come into the glorious presence. Glory means um, heaviness or weightiness, right? And so there is this sense of something awesome and and weighty taking place. And I I also just, you know, you see what ends up happening there. Um, What comes of this meeting? Are they going to get zapped? Are they going to get burned up, consumed? No, the sacrifices are consumed, and the blessing, the Lord puts his blessing on the people. Um, That's a pretty big word, right, Tim? It's it's not very specific, um, but I think it's deliberately nice and, and roomy or spacious.
0: Well, so talk more about the the way the blessing comes about in the culmination here. Again, we've got those three basic parts, as you laid out. There's the offering for Aaron. There's the offering for the people. Both of those are, are spelled out in, in pretty specific detail as we, as we read, and we've heard about some of those sacrifices already in the book of Leviticus. But then all of this culminates in this final blessing, and there's actually two— Aaron blesses the people before he and Moses go into the tent of meeting, and then when they come out of the tent of meeting, Moses and Aaron together bless the people. So talk about why that is a significant part, and how we understand what's going on here with this matter of the blessing.
1: Yeah, I don't actually, I I don't quite understand it. Why there's two blessings? But um, here's what I would, here's kind of how I would at least take a stab at it. Maybe you have, maybe you have some other insight for me. The first one is just Aaron, right? Isn't it? Doesn't it just yeah. say I got to flip there? Yeah. It's interesting so Aaron, too. so Aaron gives the blessing before he goes into the the holy place. Everything else has been taking, has been happening. All the action is out at the altar. And so then, you know, it's almost like, you know, the end of the sermon to some degree. You know, the pastor says some, you know, the sermon comes to an end. Uh, now may the, um, what's the, I can't think, it's called the votive, right? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. We, I don't do that every Sunday, but but there's some Sundays where you get this kind of preliminary blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, but But then he goes into the holy place, and it doesn't tell us what he's doing when he goes in there. Um, we can probably surmise from what we know of um, from Exodus what was going to happen. That's where the incense is offered and uh, you know Aaron is praying on behalf of the people and then he comes back out and now it's Aaron and Moses and the glory of the Lord. So this is the big blessing. The first one's just preliminary. Um, this is the big one and I think it's it's very likely here that um, the words that Aaron uses are, What we call the Aaronic benediction that comes in Numbers chapter 6. You know, the the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you, the Lord be gracious to you, and there is that visible manifestation that this isn't just a wish, right? This isn't just Aaron saying, well, I got to send them out of here somehow. Um, It seems kind of, you know, anticlimactic to say, y'all go home, so he said, so I gotta say something. No, this is God actually putting his name on the people, and that blessing brings with it, um, you know, life, salvation, uh, forgiveness of sin, all all, this, all the stuff, all the good stuff is in the blessing.
0: Sure, and, and maybe the the double nature of the blessing here, the first one being from the altar of burnt offering that's there in the courtyard of the tabernacle, and then the second one right after they leave the tent of meeting— for the purposes of this inaugural divine service, to show the people that both of these places, this altar, where the majority of what we've talked about in the book of Leviticus so far is going to take place at this altar, this altar is the place of God's blessing. And so is this tent of meeting, where, as you said, that's where Aaron will go regularly to offer the incense, it's where he will go once a year for the Day of Atonement, as we will read later into the most holy place, we'll read about that in Leviticus and later in this book, so maybe maybe that's part of it. Kind of like, I like the comparison you made within our divine service today, how there's that blessing from the pulpit that happens at the end of the sermon, and there's that blessing that happens from the altar at the end of the, the service of the sacrament. Both of these places, word and sacrament, they are places of God's blessing. Maybe something similar happening here in Leviticus chapter 9.
1: Yeah, and, and I think really especially thinking about the uh, that this is the first time these things are happening, so there are um, there are things that happen here on the fr- in the first divine service that aren't going to happen later. Um, I, d- I don't believe that it, that they're what um, there's I, not. I don't fire think that it ever says. Every time. Yeah, right. The fire stays yeah. right. That's one of the priest's job. That's maybe the priest's hardest job is to make sure the fire doesn't go out. Um, but but the um, the that double blessing, you know that that I doubt that that happened every. Right day um it's it's something that happens at the first one to make clear that what is going to happen from now on right and you see that god god does that you know that's one of the reasons why why don't we have miracles anymore why don't we see um you know fire fall uh like it did on the day of pentecost well the signs uh, accompany the inaugural things the first things they confirm it's kind of the testimony of two witnesses kind of a kind of a thing. The sign, the visible sign, confirms what is happening, so that it doesn't have to happen every time from now on.
0: So here in in Leviticus chapter 9, connect that matter of blessing to the the glory of the Lord, the presence of God among his people. Why is it that those two things especially go together?
1: Well, maybe a a good way to get at that is um, to think, well, could you have them apart from each other? Mm. You know, could you Could you have a blessing without the Lord Himself? Uh, And sometimes people want that. You know, they almost, God is a means to something else. So I'll deal with God if I can get some, if He can do something good for me. Um, This is a lot of kind of the superstitious stuff grows out of this. Um, I don't really care too much about God, but I want the things, I want the stuff, I want the goods. And what I like here in Leviticus, and and this is true throughout the Bible, is um, if God gives you himself, he can't give you anything better than that, right? Um, And so the real blessing is to have the Lord. Um, If you have him, then he may give you all kinds of other good things, too. He may give you all kinds of tangible blessings, um, but the ultimate blessing is the Lord himself. Mm. Um, Now we could also say, well, what if you have the Lord without the blessing? and that happens too that's what ezekiel is about you know if the lord comes and you you see the if the glory of the lord comes and he doesn't bring a blessing um, that's not good yeah. you know that's judgment that's that's going to be condemnation and destruction so we want both of these together we want the lord's presence and also the um, his blessing that goes along with that presence so that it's not in ambiguous presence. You know, if I if I come into the room um, and my kids are there and I just sit there and stare at them, what are they going to think? Are they going to say, all right, dad's home. He, he really loves me. He's proud of me. Um, I love being with him. Well, if I don't say anything uh, or if I don't at least show a smile on my face, they don't know. They might be in big trouble. Right. You know, if, for me, when dad came home, if he didn't say anything to me, that meant, oh, he knows, you <laughs> know. <laughs> That's right.
0: Well, that, that's, and I think that's the thing that connects the two, the, the blessing and the Lord's presence. How do, how do you know? How do you connect them? It is by the, what the Lord has said. So how do I know that, that when I'm in the, the presence of the Lord, I'll have his blessing? It's according to his word. And how do I know that the presence of the Lord is the blessing that I actually need? It's again, according to his word. Going back again to verse six, that's what the Lord has commanded. Why? So that his glory would appear to you.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, it's it's so hard not to jump straight from this, and, and maybe it's—I think we're supposed to do this, right? Um, you, it's Are we talking about Leviticus now, or are we talking about um, the divine service that, you know, the Sunday worship of the Church? Right. Well, yes, right, both, uh, because we are heirs of—we have inherited this service, and when Christ comes, he doesn't abolish it, he fulfills it. Now he is a better priest. Um, he does bring better blessing, uh, and it's maybe even clearer, more specifics. Um, you know, the entry we are we are brought in to uh, heaven itself in in some kind of preliminary way still, but we we have access to the throne of grace. Um, it says in Hebrews. So it's like all this stuff that we're saying about Leviticus nine. Um, we have it even better yeah. in the Church, in the New Testament. And so it's it's fun, It's a lot of fun. This is, you know, why do we like reading Leviticus? Well, because it, it shows us, it helps us to appreciate what we have inherited.
0: So yeah, we've got about 10 minutes here, and I, I think you're exactly right, this is where the conversation has to go. The book of Hebrews, as you brought out, takes the conversation there, how these things are a shadow of what Christ has fulfilled, and then what we have in the divine service still today. So start making some of those connections to Christ, His ministry, the way that He fulfills the things yeah. that we see in Leviticus nine.
1: Well, uh, Hebrews is great because it Hebrews gives you the the statements like the you know the proof texts texts you might say, and that's really good. But if you want to see this like um, played out, you you got to go to Luke. And um, there's a number of places in Luke's Gospel where you see Jesus um, kind of taking over this priestly role. And I think it's it's clearest at the end of the Gospel. Um, when he's ascending into heaven, right? He is going up into heaven. You know, heaven had been closed, so to speak, and but now through his death and resurrection, uh, he's going up, He's ascending in. And what's the last thing that they see in Luke's gospel? They see him lifting his hands in blessing. Mm -hmm. And all the people, even as they're seeing him go, this is one of the things that's always um, so kind of striking about the ascension. Nobody's saying, uh, no, please don't go. Please stay. Um, Because they know, even though he is visibly parted from them, he is not gone. And what What Luke does a great job of showing us is uh, that he, as he goes up, he is blessing them. Um, I think even that posture of hands lifted uh, in blessing, just like they would have seen in the tabernacle. well, it would have been the temple at that point, right? But they, they could have seen Aaron doing it in shadow form, but now who needs the shadow when you have
0: the reality? Right, so connecting the ascension of Jesus in Luke 24 to Leviticus chapter 9, helps us to see precisely what you're saying, that as Jesus blesses the people there as he ascends, then that actually means that his presence is with the people rather than removed from the people. The connection between the presence of God and the blessing, put that into Luke chapter 24, you see that the ascension isn't, as you said, Jesus leaving, but it's actually him giving his presence in a new and an even better way there in his ascension.
1: Yeah, and then, so then you go over into Hebrews, and you can see this, um, you know, in in more like, um, it's not a narrative anymore, but it's just statements, right? Doctrinal assertions that Jesus is a a better high priest who inaugurates a better covenant because it's based on better promises. Um, And that's not to say that, you know, the Old Testament was bad or something. Um, It just means that what's new is better. This is good American stuff, right? New is always better. <laughs> um, the it, Bigger is better, newer is better, right? Uh, but there, there really is something to that, um, and again, we want to see it as the fulfillment of the old. What was hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. I think that's St. Augustine. Uh, what, that's one of these famous sayings that that is just so powerful to keep in mind
0: sure or the idea of uh, shadow and substance so that the Old Testament yeah. that's the shadow that's being cast now the substance is actually here in Christ so you don't you don't hold on to the shadow rather the, the way that I heard it described once is you know when someone's walking around the corner you see their shadow coming and so you know they're coming but then once you see them arrive you go and give them a hug you don't hug the shadow yeah. and that's that's the Old Testament pointing to Christ yeah right on and uh,
1: so uh, and you can do that with almost all of the details here in Leviticus um some trying to get you know really granular um, you know into the very spe- specifics it, it might be d- more difficult to make those connections but just think of what is happening there in Leviticus 9 the blood of the animals is atoning for the sins of Aaron and for the sins of the people well the blood of Christ uh, atones even better, right? Um, and that's one of the points in Hebrews. It's not the blood of goats and bulls and rams that remove sins. It's the blood of the Son of God. Um, and even, we didn't mention this much, but one of those offerings is called a peace offering. Mm. And uh, one of the great things that happens in the peace offering that doesn't happen in the other offerings is that the people actually get to eat a portion of that offering. It's not all burned up on the altar. So they have this communion meal um, with this holy food. Now the Lord is not visibly present with them, but the idea is that some of this was offered to God and he received it, and some of it is given back to you and you eat it. Well, what are we supposed to think of there, Tim? I mean, that that is the Old Testament hidden form of the Lord's Supper, which is made clearer, made manifest. Uh, in the New Testament. And so Hebrews will say, you know, we have a, we have an altar, we have a table that the priests are not worthy to eat from, um, the sons of Aaron, be, because now the priesthood um, is not based on, you know, descent from Aaron, now it's based on uh, regeneration, it's based on faith in Christ, and that gives you access to this better food.
0: Mm, yeah. So with the, the mention of the Lord's Supper as and thinking about the life of the Church still today, we've talked about aspects of the divine service that Christians are, are given still today. Uh, make some more of those connections for us. How do we see the, the theology of Leviticus 9, uh, Jesus as our, our great high priest, how do we see that within the divine service?
1: Well, in at my church, at the end of every service, uh, we all fall on our faces and scream. Um <laughs> We all I'm going to have to come to Joel church now. in Paducah some yeah, weekend. Please do. Wouldn't it be great? Um, we, we don't do that, but I think you see there a principle that we do carry over into the New Testament, which is that the physical stuff, the the postures that we take, and even the use of our voices, um, that is not incidental to worship. That's not like no big deal. That is that is part of the reception of the, the blessing, is that it calls out... Our response, you know. So sometimes uh, the the debates about what happens in worship get one sided, one way or another. Well, we come to worship God. You know, the emphasis is on what we're doing for Him. Um, or you can fall into the ditch on the other side, which is that the service is all about what God does for us, and we don't do anything. We just kind of sit there, and I don't know. It all happens to us. We're, it's very passive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the reality is that the Lord serves, this is how it is in the preface to our hymnal, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, The Lord's service to us calls forth our service to him, you know, it's as that response. So there is a place for, um, you know, the passive side, the reception of the gift, just like they receive the blessing. Uh, But when you receive the blessing of the Lord, when you're in the presence of the glory of the Lord, uh, your voice wants to speak. Right? The, the sacrifices of praise come out and even the posture of the body um, is part of that worship so the bowing the kneeling um, the folding of hands these are not just done uh, so that i don't get distracted you know there is kind of that practical side of it you know why do, that's why my parents taught me to fold my hands right so that i don't fidget with all kinds of other stuff um, that's true, but it also is just the the posture my body takes, my body participates in the worship of the Lord,
0: just as much as my mind does. Mm. How does that happen, especially with the the pastor and his his posture? Not just the the congregation, but also with the pastor.
1: Oh yeah, this this is good. So um, one of the the things that they teach you right away at the seminary when you take a, a class on Christian worship, or might call it liturgics or something like that. Um, and it's not even just seminary level stuff. This is just good, every good theology is good for everybody, right? Um, but just think about the the um, the position of the pastor. Where's he facing? Um, sometimes in the service, the pastor is facing the congregation, and other times um, he is facing towards the altar. Well, why is he doing that? Um, it's because the pastor's role within the service is twofold. Sometimes he's acting as God's representative right? In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins. So he is, those are the sacramental parts of the service where God is serving us. Um, but just as often, too, the pastor is the representative of the congregation. Um, so sometimes congregations, uh, especially visitors, say, why does he keep turning his back to us? Why, why does the pastor, why doesn't he look at us? Um, does he not like us? And of course, that has nothing to do with it, um, but that's how it can feel. And it's helpful to see when the pastor turns his back on the congregation, he's actually standing with the congregation, right? He is representing us. So think about, uh, in the order of worship, um, the prayer of the church, or the collect of the day, um, or even those the, that great thanksgiving, the preface and the proper preface before the Lord's Supper. Um, he, the pastor there, is kind of summing up just like the priest um, in the Old Testament brought the people um, into the Lord's presence. The pastor is representing everybody um, up at the altar, and that representative principle still applies
0: uh, in our worship too. Pastor Apple, we got about a minute left here on the morning. Help us to wrap things up on Leviticus 9. Again, how does this chapter of the inaugural divine service of the Tabernacle of Israel? how does it point us to Christ?
1: Well, we have we have a high priest uh, who is even better um, than Aaron. Aaron never got to sit down, but uh, Christ Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. The, he has made the sacrifice once and for all. No longer is there a need for a daily atoning sacrifice, um, and so what what we have in the New Testament is the the blessing of the Lord coming to us. It's clarified the forgiveness of sin- sins. Think about what our catechism says about the Lord's Supper. Where there is the forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Um, where the blessing of the Lord is, is made known through his means of grace, there you have um, what the people in the Old Testament longed to see. Um, what they saw in a preliminary way, we have in this, in this fuller way. Now I do. I will put in one caution for you, Tim. The story's not quite over. That's right. Uh, and yeah. what happens in chapter 10 uh, is a warning about how this can all go wrong. So there's a cliffhanger for the listeners. <laughs> you got to come good. back tomorrow.
0: Come back tomorrow to find out what happens in Leviticus chapter 10. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Yes, my pleasure.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 9, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.